The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. One, let me first explain why I'm here as opposed to perhaps you were expecting Vince. So he is not sick, he has not been kidnapped by gypsies, he's not been a heretic, we've kicked him out of the church, and he's not missing, although we probably do miss him. He is helping out a partner congregation here in the Cincinnati area whose pastor is out of town this week, so he got picked to preach at their church and I got picked to preach here. Yeah, so that's why I'm here. So... Today, <laughs> so today we will be in math uh, in Mark. Sorry, Mark chapter eleven. So while you turn there, um, I will wish you a happy new year. You may not think that it is the beginning of the new year. You may have thought, hold on, wasn't that the beginning of the month? Not this month. You got to get your knuckles out and count it off and figure out when does the year begin. But this past Wednesday was the new year. For trees. You may have no idea what I'm talking about. So, Wednesday, the 27th, was the Jewish holiday called Tuba Shavat, which is one of four times in the year called the New Year in the Jewish calendar. And so, it is the new year for how you count agricultural fields, right? So, there's most of the Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy discuss the agricultural calendar that the Israelites and then the Jews followed. Um, as they go through the cycle of the year. And so the Tuba Shavad is the beginning when you count fields in terms of uh, when you can harvest grain, when you can plant trees and do that thing. So hopefully on Wednesday you hugged a tree because it was its birthday. Um, that's, yeah, so that's the beginning of that. Now, on Tuba Shavad, as well as other agricultural festivals within the Jewish calendar like Sukkot, you eat the seven species of the field, right? The seven species that characterize the land of Israel and the bounty therein. So I'm going to start there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8. So you stay in Mark. I'm just going to flip over here. And so we're going to read, starting Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting, I'm actually going to start in verse 7 because it's the beginning of the sentence. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out into the valleys and the hills. Now count with me the seven species. A land of wheat, barley, vines, that is grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and date honey. Right, so those are the seven species that you would eat on to Shavat and Sukkot and other agricultural holidays. And those are the seven species that represent bounty and fertility and prosperity in the agricultural calendar. Now, today we're going to talk about a fig tree that doesn't produce any fruit, which is a symbol of infertility or inproductivity, unproductivity, sorry, I had to conjugate my word there, right? Or a, some sort of letdown in the system of what's supposed to happen, all right? So moving back to Mark chapter 11, I'm actually going to jump sort of towards the beginning of the chapter because Vince so kindly sliced the middle of the metaphor for me when he gave me what part I was doing. So I have to kind of 
start where the, the, the parable starts and then move from there. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and went seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if there was any figs on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then we're going to skip over the cleansing of the temple, which we talked about last week, down to verse 20, where we'll start today. As they passed by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, as, forgive if, anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... For we are afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they turned and answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so we're looking here at a fig tree that is representing a spiritual reality. So oftentimes, this is one of the more problematic parables or stories or events in the Bible. Uh, Bertrand Russell, very famously in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, used this example to explain why Jesus was not so great of a person after all, i.e., he curses a tree who's, who, by no fault of its own, doesn't produce fruit, and it dies, Right? So this is a really problematic passage, and we really need to dig into it and look at what it represents. So the fig tree is a fig tree, but it is also not a fig tree. It is a metaphor for the people to whom Jesus is interacting with in the whole thing. Right? That's why in chapter 11, the fig tree bounces back and forth between them t dealing with the fig tree and then dealing with the leaders, and then back to the fig tree and then back to the leaders. So let's take a step back and let's look at what the fig tree represents in the context, right? So the metaphor only makes sense if you know what the metaphor is there for, right? So the the context is supposed to be uh, completely apparent to the, the leaders, right? It may not be as obvious to the rest of us because they are supposed to know their Bibles front to back, up to down. They should know when Jesus curses a fig tree what that's supposed to represent, okay? So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, a very famous passage. As soon as I start reading it, you will remember, okay? 
So Genesis chapter 3. And the man called his his wife's name Eve, for she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for them, Adam and Eve, garments of skin and clothes. Okay, hold on. I thought you said there were figs here. Why did God make them coverings of skins of the animals? Because earlier... It said, and their eyes were both opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. Figs represent knowledge. In Genesis 3, they represent the knowledge that Adam and Eve were not supposed to have that they acquired by eating the wrong fruits. Later on in the book of Proverbs, one of the passages that we're going to use for uh, our discussion today, so I'll keep coming back to it again, is Proverbs 27, 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Right, the, again, the fig tree represents a certain level of knowledge. Here in Proverbs, it's the knowledge that one learns through years of discipleship with someone. The idea of tending the fruit tree is the idea of learn of gaining its fruit, its knowledge by being a servant to one's master, to one's rabbi is the word that we use in the New Testament. Right? So the the idea of fruit is the idea of tending these plants agriculturally as a matter as a metaphor of tending the words of the scriptures, the knowledge that God gives, the discipleship of one's master. Okay, so that's one image of what a fig tree is. Another image, and I'm not going to read all these passages, is the image of the fig tree as prosperity, as one's retirement almost. Okay, so I'm going to jump to Micah chapter 4 and read the first four verses, or the first five verses here, excuse me. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the highest of all, as the highest of all mountains, and it will be lifted up above all the hills. And people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he shall judge between many peoples and decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every one under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has said it. And for all the people walk each according to the name of their God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So if you'll allow me to have a moment just to break down this passage a little bit so we can talk about how that's going to be reflecting in, because all of this is in the background of what's happening in Mark 11. So here Micah is prophesying what it will be like when the Messiah comes. And the, the idea there is that everyone will come to Jerusalem to learn the truth, right? The mountain of the house of the Lord, right? If you know your geography, Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain, and the temple sits on the highest point of that mountain, so that you literally go up to God. 
You have to climb the hill. And so all the nations will go up to God. Why? For out of Zion comes forth the law and out and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Today, in the Jewish liturgy, this verse is chanted when you read the scriptures. You read this verse because from out of Zion shall come forth Torah, law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the temple that Jesus is going up and down in in Mark 11 is literally the place where all of the decisions about what is the law are made. So when the Pharisees and the teachers say, who gave you authority to do these things? They're saying, why do you think you get to come and teach us what the law says? And he shall judge between many peoples and decide for the nations, and they shall be at peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, right? They will turn the weapons of war into the implements of agriculture, Agriculture represents the idea of peace and prosperity. And how do we know that? Because in the very next verse, in verse 4, it says, everyone will sit under his vine and fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Remember, Micah is a prophet speaking to Israel in a time in which Assyria and Egypt, every time, comes marching through their land and devastates everything in their quest for power and empire. But in the end, God will bring priests to the land and everyone will sit in their beautiful garden with their grapevine and their fig tree and no one will disturb them again. This is the promise of God, that knowledge of Torah, knowledge of the scripture will bring peace to the world and this peace to everyone. So that's the second image. So the fig represents knowledge of the truth. And it also represents the prosperity that comes from the knowledge of truth. And finally, it comes from a sense of refreshment, right? Throughout the scripture, the idea that the law was coming to them was an idea of refreshment. And the idea that fruit was bountiful in the land was one of the promises that God makes. That they will have the opportunity to be able to enjoy what they've planted, right? One of the uh, issues is that they would not be able to enjoy that fruit if Assyria or Egypt comes and devastates them, right? It will go to someone else. So I'm going to read from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which is the end of the book of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and the fruit is not on the vine, and the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, and the flocks are cut off from their fold, and there is no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, God, the Lord, is my strength, and he makes my feet like those of the deer. He makes me tread on his high places." So the idea is the fig with all of these other fruits of the land come to represent the idea of refreshment, the idea of nourishment when one has gone through a period of time 
in which there was not, right? So throughout the scriptures, the idea that people would come to the fig tree and find that it is in fruit, and they would be refreshed. So now, let's go back to Mark 11. So Jesus has come to the fruit tree looking for refreshment. He has come to Jerusalem looking for those who will tend his knowledge. He has come to the mountain of God, to the temple of God, bringing with him the prosperity that comes with his kingdom and his gospel. And what does he find? A fruit tree with no fruit. Do you get it now? He comes to the place which should bring knowledge and prosperity and refreshment, not only to Israel, but to all of the world, and he finds them barren. The tree is in leaf, but it doesn't have any fruit. It's alive, but it's not bringing life. And so he curses the tree. He curses the leaders. Because you are like a fig tree with, with no fruit when I came to you for these things. Now, picking up in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered at its roots, and Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And this is where it gets weird. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. What? Huh? What kind of an answer is that? Have faith in God? What? The answer that Jesus is doing is he is bringing the fruit to his disciples that the other leaders won't. The answer is in the potential. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, I am trained in the way of alliteration of all of my points. So the letter of the day on Sesame Street is P. All of the points will begin with a P. So you're going to listen for the P words, okay? That's what we're doing today. So the potential is in the tree, okay? The potential is in the tree. So the answer is, is the tree is withered all the way down to its fruit and the disciples say, what's happening? And Jesus says, have faith in God. The tree may be dead, but still fruit will come. Right? The tree, we may look out at our world, at our nation, at our religion, at our culture, at our civilization, and we may think this tree is dead. Have faith. In God. So, why can we have faith in God? Because God has within Him the power to enact the potential. But then the next verse flips us to the other side of the coin of how God works. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but sees that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Who has the potential power now? In verse 23, 
You do. God has the power to enact the potential, and you have the power to enact the potential. Now, this is not a sermon about prosperity theology. This is a sermon about prosperity. Okay? This is not about you wanting a Ferrari and speaking it into the universe, and it's going to pop out of the mountain of God and come into your driveway. That is not what we're doing here. Again, what is the image Jesus uses to talk about this overpowering faith, this faith so big that it can do what? It can move a mountain into the sea. What's the mountain? It's the temple who can say to this mountain, go and be thrown into the sea, right? We're still in the metaphor. The mountain is just a mountain. It's the mountain of the old dead tree. It's the mountain of the religion or the culture or the civilization or the nation which bears no fruit. And God says, if you say, get out of here, it will come to pass. This is a call not for us to beg for Ferraris, but to beg for revival. This is a call for us to plead with God to bring fruit back. You have the potential within you to enact the power. Let's go to the next verse. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Plead with God and it will come. Now, what's interesting here is in the various different manuscripts that go behind our translation of the Bible, right? So the, remember, for history, it's like books did not come with a photocopier in the ancient world. They didn't come with movable type. Someone had to sit down and for months or years of their life copy it letter by letter by hand. And sometimes things change that the manuscripts get transmitted. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. 99% of the text, the changes, is because someone didn't know how to spell the word, right? And they put an I instead of an E. doesn't change anything, okay? But one of the more significant changes, more significant differences, let me say, not changes, but maybe differences, is the tense of the verb, right? So the verb here, you will receive it, is sometimes conjugated to be, and you will have received it. Right? So we're going to have a little bit of an English lesson for a second. We've already done metaphor. Now we're going to do some English grammar. We've been doing algebra at the end. Now we'll do algebra at the end. Okay. Right? So will receive it is a future tense verb. Pray now, believe that it will come in the future. Will have received it is what's called a future perfect verb. It is already happened, but you just haven't seen it, right? Is assured in a will have, it's a possibility in just the will. So someone thought, oh, it's already happened. And someone else thought, oh, it's going to happen. Do you know what doesn't really matter? Because both are true. It doesn't really matter what the tense of the verb is because the promise 
has its potential. So God has the power to enact the potential. We have the power to enact the potential. And the potential has a promise. I told you there are a lot of peace. There's going to be more peace. The promise has, the potential has a promise. Let me get this straight. So the promise also has a potential, but anyway, that's what I was saying. So what we do not need in this verse is a prosperity theology. We need, as Robert Smith Jr. said recently, who is a preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School, we need an adversity theology. All right, so what are we supposed to be praying for in this verse? I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you will have received it and it will be yours. Anybody else remember what big prayer we're supposed to be praying in the Gospels? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and give us this day our daily bread, right? The the model prayer or the Lord's prayer is about God's will being enacted and God's sustenance being provided to us. It is the overarching arc of history coming to fulfillment in our day and our everyday's need taken care of by the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It's all one piece. You don't have to worry about your prosperity if you worry about God's kingdom. Because God's going to take care of you. Sometimes even if you're sassy and you talk back to him, he takes care of you. Some of my favorite people are the ones that tell God, I just want to go and die. Right? Elijah and Jonah. They do something. Elijah, like, you know. Let's, I'm just going to veer on to because I brought it up. So Elijah goes... Love the story. He goes on, he takes on the king and queen of the nation he lives on, 700 priests, calls fire down from God. And you know what the next thing he does is? God, I want to die. Talk about a major depressive episode. And God says, I'm not done with you yet. Here's some bread. Right? The birds bring this bread and these like water to him, and he eats it, and he goes on a little bit of a journey. He tells God, I want to die. And God's like, here's a Snickers bar. You're hangry, okay? Like, and so he gets some more bread. He goes on the journey. And God, he comes to the mountain of God, and he goes into the cave, and he hears a torrential storm. And then he hears, like, the mountains ripping apart, and then he hears a whisper, and he knows that that's God. Because God, when God moves, the world responds. And Elijah says to God, on the mountain of God, in the presence of God, I want to die. And God says, okay, but not yet. I got a task for you. I need you to go anoint this guy king, anoint this guy king, anoint this guy the, the prophet after you, and then you can die. I got work for you to do. Jump forward to the book of Jonah. Jonah, God tells Jonah, I need you to go to the most wicked city there is, right? Like, I don't even know what the comparison would be for us. It would be something like Las Vegas and the worst parts of our culture or whatever, right? I need you to go preach to them the gospel or the truth that they are, the judgment is coming to them. And you know what Jonah does? He goes the other way. I don't want to do that. You know why he doesn't want to do that? Because he knows God 
doesn't only bring judgment. And so he gets on the boat, he goes the other way, and God's like, oh, well, really? You know, God, sovereign, universe, whatever, storm, boom. What about that, Jonah? Why don't you live in a whale for three days? How about that? Then a whale vomits you up. That's probably unpleasant. And God's like, do we want to try this again, Jonah? Jonah's like, fine. (laughs) I love it, because Jonah goes, you're all going to die. God's killing you. Judgment's coming. And you know what happens in the city? Exactly what Jonah thought was going to happen. The city repented. And God saved the city. And you know what Jonah did? He had what we might call a temper tantrum. I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew that you were a God of mercy and you were going to forgive them and I don't like it. So Jonah goes and sits under his vine, which he loves. And God's like, "Mm, kill the vine. And Jonah's like, well, now you've killed my vine. Why didn't you just go ahead and kill me? And God said, don't you understand that I can kill the vine and I can kill the city whenever I want to. That was never the point, Jonah. The point was, I don't want to kill the city. I didn't want to have to kill the vine. I don't want to have to kill you. I want to show mercy. Why is that a problem for you? And, and God said, and I love it because it's a, this, it just, the book of Jonah just ends with this very weird statement. It's like, there are thousands of people living in the city and many cattle. Why did you want me to kill them? Boom, end of book. Right? Like, you're like, why are we talking about cows now? And it's, again, I, I don't know. I think this is my little side note. It's like, I think it's, there were people there that you didn't even know about. You were going to call down judgment on children and animals and everything just because you were having a bad day. Or you just didn't like them. Who are you to decide who I get to save? Let's come back to the passage. I wasn't veering off for no reason there. Okay? The whole context of the tree mountain leader's metaphor is this conversation that Jesus is about to have with the religious leaders. Because he's going to come to them going up into the temple, and they're going to say to him, who lets you teach these things? Who said that you could forgive people, Jesus? Jonah. Who said that you could do these things, Jesus? Elijah. That's the context. And so Jesus comes up to the mountain and the, the leaders. And what's interesting about this is the way they phrase it. They bring all the different groups together. The priests, who probably represent the Sadducees. The scribes, who represent a group that we're not really sure where it falls, but they're sort of another legal scholar group. And the elders, who are, or again, we're not really sure who that group is, but somewhere in there is the group we might call the Pharisees. The religious leadership of both sides who don't like each other have decided to join up to take out Jesus in this question. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus says to them, okay. Who gave John his authority? Why does he bring up John? Because John was the one that was pointing them to Jesus. 
right? John says, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And when John sees Jesus, he says, there he is, everybody. I'm done. My work is complete. Go listen to him. So where does John get his authority? Now, this is the most brilliant and stupid thing I think the leadership could do. They thought about what the question was. So they go over and they're in the, I like to like think of it like they're in a little huddle, right? They get over this way and they're like, all right, here's our options, okay? So it's either he's from heaven or he's not from heaven. If he's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? If we say he's not from heaven, then everyone is going to not follow us anymore. So their options are to look like they made the wrong choice or to look like no one's going to follow them, right? So one option is from heaven, the option of power, right? Where the power is from heaven. And see, here's the thing. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, that's what they're claiming. Oh, I teach what God said on the holy mountain. What do you teach? My interpretation comes from above everyone else's. My Torah comes from heaven. For out of Zion will come the law, and out of Jerusalem will come the word of the Lord. That's what they're claiming. They're claiming that they speak for God. And so he says, who did John speak for? And if they said, well, he spoke for, oh gosh, dang it. If John speaks for God, then we don't speak for God. That's where the problem is. The problem is power. Now, we don't have a lot of other images of this kind of idea from outside the Christian world, right? The, the, the way history works, we don't get to keep all the books. Some of that has to do with, you know, again, that whole copying out by hand. Some people just got bored and didn't copy the books. And then sometimes it's because people burn books or burns or books are destroyed or lost or whatever it is, right? We don't have all of the stories. So I'm going to have to go a little bit late in history to find some, uh, some color commentary on this idea. So our first one comes from the Jewish world. It comes from a text called uh, Eruvin 54a and b. And it says, Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of the verse, he who guards the fig tree shall eat of its fruit? Is it not that the matters of Torah are compared to a fig tree? For just like this fig tree, when a person searches it to find figs to eat, he finds figs in it. As the figs of a tree do not all ripen at once, so that one can always find a recently ripened fig. So too are the matters of Torah. When a person thinks on them, he finds in them new meaning. Right? So what Rabbi Yochanan says, and this is much later than the New Testament, but again, I don't have a lot of stories, right? You know, because do work with what I got, right? He says, the fig tree is the Torah. The fig tree is the knowledge. The fig tree is the way we're supposed to apply it. See, the issue for Jesus, for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees is we don't live in the world of Exodus anymore. And guess what? We don't live in the world of Exodus anymore. Right? We have to apply it to our daily life. And I don't know about you, but they don't talk about what I'm supposed to do when my hybrid car breaks down in this book. 
right? Like, okay, like, what is the prayer for, please restart my hybrid car? Or what am I, what am I supposed, do I have a hybrid? Like, first of all, this doesn't tell you you're supposed to have a hybrid car. Second of all, this is supposed to tell you what you're supposed to do with a hybrid car. And third of all, it doesn't tell you how to fix the hybrid car, Right? So if this book is the central authority for our life, and it's not telling us what to do with our hybrid car, we got to figure out what to do with our hybrid car, right? And you may think, okay, that's a stupid example. Who cares about your hybrid car? What about your marriage? What about your political party? Oh, now I know what you're going with, Andrew. See, the hybrid car was to ease you into it before I slammed you. The Bible doesn't talk about politics, in the modern American sense. The Bible doesn't talk about marriage in the modern American sense. And so we have to interpret the text. We have to speak as Christians, and this is not just the person who stands up here in the pulpit, it's every single one who's listening to this message. You have to speak to this culture about what the Bible says. Remember, the potential is with you. What the Sadducees and the Pharisees were doing is they were trying to claim all that power for themselves and tell everyone to follow their rules. And Jesus is like, nah, brah, that's not how it works. Just like John, just like Jesus, your power also comes from heaven when you walk in the way of the Lord and following his, remember the prayer, it's all, just build on me with right, like pr- the prayer, throw the mountain into the sea. You have the power to interpret the text for yourself. That's one of the values we as Christians hold on to, that we can never let go of, is the idea that you have to decide for yourself what God is calling you to do. Okay? Don't, don't give up that power to someone else when it's yours to enact, okay? So, one thing is power, right? And that goes back to that verse. Remember the the, the little story I was telling there about Rabbi Yochanan was interpreting the Proverbs verse. He who guards the fig tree will eat of its fruit, and he who tends to his master will be rewarded. Right? You have to know if you are following in the ways of the master. That's something that has come up in recent months. We have had a discussion in this country about the way of the Lord. And let me just tell you, some of the people on Twitter and Facebook and social media have gotten it wrong. But you know what? I'm not sure any of them have gotten it completely right either. But there are some people who are way off the beam. Can I just say that? Is that fair to say? Okay? And that's why it is vital for us to take back the power that has been given to us by God. You, just because something's put up on a website does not mean that it is truth. Okay? Which brings me to my second point. The other side of the coin, that if we say that it is from man then everyone is going to hate us because they think that John is a prophet. The other problem that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the elders and the priests and the scribes were dealing with was what we might call popularity. 
Truth is not truth because it is popular. Also, truth is not truth because it's unpopular. I'm just going to dance around the landmine for a little bit, if that's okay. All right, I'm not going to say it. There's been a discussion in our culture about alternative facts. I don't even know what to do with that. Because truth is truth, whether I like it, or you like it, or a majority of Americans like it, or the government likes it, truth is truth, whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular. And the issue is that we have a tendency to want to tell people that their truth is inconvenient for us. We have a tendency that I see kind of gnawing at the edges of the discussion about whether we're going to be committed to my truth or the truth. So this is going to be a weird little metaphor passage I'm about to say, but I'm going to bring it back. One day, Rabbi Yosai from Yokrat hired day workers to work his field, and it grew late, but they, he didn't bring them any food to eat. And the workers said to his son, we're starving, and, we're, and they were sitting under a fig tree. So the son said, fig tree, yield up some fruit so that my father's workers can eat. And so the fig tree yielded fruit, and they ate. In the meantime, his father came and said to the workers, do not be angry with me for being late. I was engaged in some righteous work and I've been traveling in that course until very now. And they said to him, oh, may the merciful one, the Lord God, satisfy you as your son has satisfied us and gave us food. And he said to them, where did he get food to eat for you? And they said, oh, from such and such he got the food. And, the, and so Rabbi Yochanan of Yochrat said to his son, My son, you have troubled God by causing the fig to yield its fruit and it's not its proper time. So you too will die young. And indeed, his son died before his full time. Let me break it down. Yosei is doing what he thinks is right. And his son is doing what he thinks is right. There are workers in the field who are working for his father, and the workers are supposed to get paid their wages, right? It gets to the end of the day, the Lunchables haven't come, right? And so the workers are like, where, where's our money? Where, where, are you going to pay us? Are you going to feed us for what we're doing? And, and, Yossi's, and Yossi's son says, oh, okay, well, let me get it from the tree here. And he gets the fruit out of season. Out of whose season? Out of the season according to Rabbi Yossi. Because the tree gave its fruit. Right, you, 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 I'm trying to break down the metaphor here, right? Okay. And so when Yosi comes back and sees what's done, what does he do? He doesn't accept the thankfulness of the workers. Right? The workers are like, oh, may you be blessed like your son blessed us. Right? He doesn't thank his son for doing the job he was supposed to do, right? Pay the workers. What does he do? He curses his own son for not doing it the way he would do it. 
You picking it up? We have moved into a place in which when people do things differently than the way we do, our first response is, why don't you just go die? Instead of going, thank you for doing that. And I don't want to get into the nitpicky of all the different ramifications because you know what? That's not even the point. The point is, what's wrong in our spirit that our first response is to draw lines and divide ourselves instead of coming together and working as one people to benefit everyone? I don't care as long as you're doing something right and good how you do it. If the Republicans or the Democrats or the President or the Congress do something good, who cares? Criticize them for doing what's wrong, not for what's doing right. Am I wrong? Am I alone in this? Am I the crazy one? Probably. I'm probably the crazy one. So again, we come back to Mark. And he says, well, we can't say that it's from heaven because he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say it's from the people, then the people won't support us. And again, remember, the whole point is they want to persuade everyone to follow their rules. Their truth, not the truth. And so they come to Jesus and they say, we don't know. Now, Jesus is not stupid. He knows that they know that he knows that they know. <laughs> right? I don't know what Jesus was doing while they were discussing amongst themselves. He probably was taking a you know, sip of water and wiping down going, we're going to see what they're going to say. They're going to figure it out. Right? Here's the riddle. That's the riddle. We're going to figure out the riddle. And they come back and they go, oh, well, we don't really know. Jesus goes, well... If you don't know where John's authority comes from, you can't know where my authority comes from. And the answer is, is they knew where John's authority came from. So they already knew where, where Jesus' authority came from. So the question was never about answering where the authority came from. It was always about silencing Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what did he say to the disciples when they saw the metaphor played out with a fig tree? Right? So the, 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 we're going to circle back. The prayer in the middle is the answer to the whole fig tree problem. Okay? When they're walking away, we don't get the image of, the, of what happens. Then in chapter 12, we're going to start with a parable about a vineyard. But remember, vines and fruits are all about learning in the Bible. Like the, the metaphor of fruit is always about knowledge and prosperity and refreshment. So the answer to the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus is what Jesus already told his disciples before they asked him the question. Where do you get your authority from? Have faith in God. If this is from God, then you will know it's from God. 
If it's not from God, then God will guide you and lead you away from it. The answer is, from where do you get your authority to do these things and to teach these things is from God. Have faith in God. The, The answer that they needed was not power and not popularity, but peace. What the priests and the scribes and the elders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the disciple and everyone else and you and me need is peace. And when we don't have that, like the fig tree, we begin to wither. We become less productive and less powerful and less purposeful, and then we are less of a witness to the work of God in our life and the work of the God in those lives around us. So if I may use them as a metaphor for us, the priests and scribes and teachers withered because of their pretending. They knew when they didn't want to. How often are we pretending as we go about. When we know what God wants us to do, but like Jonah, we don't want to do it. We want to do the very opposite thing, God. I don't know about you, but I don't really need to be vomited up by a whale to get the message, okay? Can we stop pretending? They withered Because of posturing. They were trying to outflank Jesus in front of his disciples and in front of everyone in the temple. They were trying to outflank John and each other in becoming the authority to the people of their day. We need to also not posture unless that posture is that of humility. I always find it very interesting that at the very end, when we get to the, the, the weeks leading up to the crucifixion, as closer as we get to the cross, the lower Jesus seems to go in the way he explains himself. That he always seems to be going down to the cross, which is interesting because of the geography, because he literally has to go up to the cross geographically, and he goes down to the cross emotionally, or spiritually, or personally, right? The way of Jesus is to not go low, but to be low. It's not to undercut those around us. It is to serve those around us. And finally, they withered because they... I'll pass. Right, the answer we don't know is we don't want to know. We know we don't want to know. We know we'd rather not know. We know, but I don't want to know. How often do we think Rather not. 
when God says to do something to us. Hmm. I don't like it. It's not the way I want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Every time we do that, we wither. Our fruitfulness, the opportunity passes. And with it, the opportunity to be fruit, for another person to be fruitful through us. So I'm going to go back and read the three images I had before. I'm going to start at Proverbs 27. I'm going to talk about what, how not to wither. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever guards his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face, and so the heart of a man reflects the man. When we are given the chance to pretend, let us instead, I have to go from P's now, reflect. Right? Let us reflect Jesus. Maybe you can think of it like, fake it till you make it. Whenever you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here, be like Jesus. And it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And they shall beat their plowshares into their, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And every man will sit under his vine and his fig tree, and no one will make him afraid. It is time for us to not posture. It is time for us to reflect. Now, using a different definition of reflect. It's time for us to look back and look forward. The, the beautiful image of this retirement scene here of sitting under your vine and your fig tree is it's not last minute. Right? You have to plant the vine in order to sit under it. You can't just go down to Ikea and buy it. You have to prepare for the future as you reflect on the past. We need to move forward in our culture and not continue the posturing that has gotten us where we're at, if I can be completely frank. We need to reflect on the past and prepare for the future. There is a lot we need to fix in this world. And we've been given the tools to do that and the blueprint of what that's going to look like in a kingdom, and we better start preparing for our retirement. We need to work ourselves out of a job. Hallowed be thy name. Let thy kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. Too often we have allowed ourselves to think that we're just going to get teleported up into paradise and we didn't have to do anything for it. And while we didn't do anything to gain it, we have to do something for it. Right? You, you, you got to build a kingdom if you're going to dwell in a kingdom. You, you, you track what I'm saying? You, you got to put in the sweat equity so that everyone can sit under their vine and their fig tree. 
both those that worked and those that didn't work. There'll be a lot of slackers in heaven. And they're going to sit under a vine and a fig tree and no one will make them afraid, but they're also going to be like, thanks to whoever put my vine here, I like it. Thanks to whoever planted this fig tree, I enjoy it. We need to get back to the agriculture of the kingdom. And then in Habakkuk, the end of chapter 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and the fruit be not on the vines, and the produce of the olive should fail, and the fields yield no fruit, and the flocks have no be cut off from their fold, and there is no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The saddest Heart when I look at scripture about all of these leaders who are opponents to Jesus is that they didn't get it and so they didn't get it. They were so busy being right they got it wrong. Right? They could have had peace and prosperity and refreshment. They could have had salvation and rejoicing but I don't want it. The appeal of the gospel is not that we are right. Knuckle you down with our apologetics and our logic and win. But that we all get to win together. That's the amazing thing about whenever you talk about heaven in the scripture. It seems like a really cool place with lots of people in it, and we're going to have like a dance party forever. Who doesn't want that? Who's like, I'd rather burn forever? And who are you to want people to burn forever? Right? The hardest piece doctrinally about the scriptures is not salvation, it's about punishment. If we really have the mind of Christ and the heart of mercy, we should be daily bothered that our friends are going to be separated us forever because they didn't want this. Right? We should be plagued not because we're jealous, but because we're zealous. We need to savor the gospel and want to be so enamored by it that it oozes out of us to everyone around us, and they have to really want to not want it. Because sometimes I think some of us are making heaven sound like sucking on lemons. Our britches are too tight, and our rules are too strict, and all we want to say is no when Jesus is saying, come, eat, 
be with me. We need to get our gospel right. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you that you have given us knowledge. That though we chose the knowledge that you didn't want for us, you provided for us all we needed. When we were stitching figs leaves together, trying to hide our shame from you, you began the process of sanctification and redemption to cover over our sin. We thank you, God, that you have given us prosperity. That as we sit here in a nation in which we are free to proclaim your praises openly, we need to remember that not all of our brothers and sisters through history or even today have that privilege. As we look at a world that is suffering on so many different levels, God, we thank, that you, thank you that you promise that we will have our daily bread. We ask you, Lord, that we would become vessels of that mercy and that grace to those around us. We pray, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that you would bring us refreshing, that you would bring us a peace in your gospel and your redemption that is sweet, that is savoring, that is worthy of a God who loves us, a God who is love. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives to come as we seek to build your kingdom and bring your glory on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org. Dot org.